Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, this Advent has been strange for me because I keep planning things out and then God keeps changing them on me. And so, you know, today I had originally planned to talk about how a child was born. I had called the sermon Unto Us. I had this whole thing mapped out. And then yesterday, I felt like God was telling me to talk about something else. And so... As you can see, maybe on the screen here, the sermon today is called The Gift of Testing. It's sort of the last gift under the tree that we've been talking about this whole time. We've had the gift of of anticipation, the gift of waiting, the gift of declaration, and now the gift of testing. And, you know, I was looking in Scripture this week a little bit. You know, Luke chapter 2 is where we find the story of the birth of Jesus. But what, what comes after that? What do we know about what happens after? Because... Because that's kind of what today is. Today is what happens after. Christmas came. You know, the the baby Jesus was born. So what happens after the baby Jesus was born? Well, in Luke, we see a couple of things. One, we see a a snapshot of Jesus as a 12-year-old, an early teenager, and he's talking with some elders in the temple. He's teaching them. They're astounded by his wisdom. Okay? After that, we meet John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a prophet who's heralding the way of Jesus, the Messiah, coming, and then Jesus gets baptized, and then Jesus goes right into a trial. We know it is the temptation of Jesus. Jesus spends time in the wilderness. Satan descends upon him and and tempts him. And when I was praying yesterday, I just felt like God was saying, there are some people out there who are going through a time of testing right now, and this is what we need to talk about. And maybe 2020 was the test. Maybe 2021 will be the test. We really don't know. But I felt like if we engage this passage of Scripture, there are some things that we can pull out to say, if we carry these things with us into 2021, we're all going to be better off. And so today, we're going to go to Luke chapter 4, so just a little bit after the birth of Jesus, and we're going to talk about the temptation of Jesus. So I'm going to start in Luke chapter 4, verse 1 goes this way. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. We're going to pause there. What we're going to do is just read a couple of verses. We're going to pause, talk about it, and keep going. And at the end, I'm going I'm to do this a little different than I normally do. The way I'm going to wrap up our sermon today is I'm just going to outline the points that we talked about. So if you're somebody who likes to take notes, at the very end, I'm going to put six things on the screen for you as a reminder of what you should carry with you into 2021. But we're going to talk through those points kind of verse by verse. So Jesus is somehow prepared. We don't really know how God prepares Jesus for the temptation that he's going through, for this trial in the wilderness. But we know that he was prepared for it. He was prepared and fitted, fitted for it. Whoever designed the trial, God, knew that Jesus would go through the trial. 
So God prepared him. And because we don't know what happened between you know, age 12 and age 30, we don't know all the things that God did to prepare Jesus, but we can trust that God prepared Jesus for this trial, for this testing. The same is true for us. God has prepared us for the trials and the temptations and the testing that is before us. We can trust in that. One of the things that Scripture tells us that Jesus is doing is fasting. And perhaps fasting is something that you've done before, you've heard of, you know what it is, and perhaps it's something that you have not heard of before. Fasting is when you give something up for a period of time. In this case, Jesus gives up food for 40 days, which is pretty miraculous in and of itself because after about three weeks, our bodies need food, and if they don't have food, they begin to shut down. But fasting does some really helpful things for us, and it's not for everybody. All right, fasting should be done under the, the wisdom of somebody who maybe has experience in fasting. Wisdom should be done for some of us under the guidance of a doctor. And I don't want to not say that. But part of what fasting does for Jesus here is it makes him a bit more indifferent to the body and to the world. And that might sound weird to you. The body and the world can be footholds for Satan. Now, it doesn't mean that they are necessarily, but they can be footholds for Satan. I think about the body. There's things that our bodies want. I, I told a story at the Christmas Eve service about going hiking. That hiking trip that I was on was three and a half weeks long, and the whole time, I didn't have any meat because, well, it's hard to backpack with meat and keep it to the temperature it needs to be so it doesn't go bad. So what's the very first thing I wanted when I got out of the woods and got to real, real clothes, got a shower. I wanted to go get a nice big burger because I love meat. And the instructors on that trip said, hey, be careful what you eat because your body's not used to it. And I thought, three and a half weeks, that's not enough time not to get used to it. And I wanted that burger. I went right to a restaurant, got the biggest burger head on the menu, ate that baby, and threw that baby up because my body wasn't used to it. But boy, I wanted that burger. I had that craving for that thing. Our bodies crave stuff, all right? When we go by McDonald's, you smell the McDonald's food. When you watch TV, you see a commercial for a certain kind of food out there, and you're like, oh, I want that food now, right? That, our bodies want stuff. So think about your bodies. They want things like food. They want to be strong. We wish we could be attractive. We want to be more youthful. Our bodies even want things like sex. And so it's very easy for our bodies to become a possible foothold for Satan. And we need to be wary of that. We need to be careful of that. Now think about the world. What does the world tell you that you should want and that you should need? The world is always pushing things on us like power. Be more powerful. Be more influential. You should have more privilege than you have. Don't let things be taken away from you. You should get more stuff, more possessions. Spend your money on that. These can all, again, be footholds for Satan. Doesn't mean that they're negative things necessarily. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to go to the gym and take care of yourself. But if the gym is the thing that you do above all else, if the gym is the thing that gets in the way of everything else that's going on, then yeah, it's probably a bad thing in your life. That's what we need to be aware of. And so fasting for Jesus lets him have a bit more control over the influence of his body, the influence of the world upon him. It can do that for all of us as well. Luke chapter 4, verse 3 says this. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. 
Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. Now first, the first thing that Satan does is question the role and the identity and the authority of Jesus. It's the first thing. He says, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, the very first thing he does is question who he really is. And that's something that we all need to walk away with today. You need to know that there is Satan in the world, Satan in your life, Satan, you hear his voice, and the first thing he's going to do is question you as to who you are. Are you really forgiven? Are you really a son of God or a daughter of God? Are you really? Those are the first things that they push, he pushes right into our lives. I mean, what happens right before the temptation of Jesus? It says that Jesus came up out of the Jordan. What happened at the Jordan? He was baptized. In this moment when he's baptized, what happens at his baptism? Something that doesn't happen at anyone else's baptism. The voice of God speaks and says, This is my son, whom I love and whom I am well pleased. And then a dove descends upon him. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. I mean, this is confirmation. We just read the Christmas story over the last number of weeks. And so you know that when the angels come to Mary and Joseph, they tell Mary and Joseph who this little child's going to be what he is going to grow up to become. But that's the last time that there's any voice from heaven that confirms who Jesus is, at least that we're aware of, until his baptism. And then the boy, the babe that has grown up, that has become a man, we have confirmation. This is my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. He is the Messiah foretold. And the first thing that Satan does is passively, passive-aggressively question this whole thing, okay? Be aware of the passive-aggressive questions of Satan. Now, look, this whole thing we call is the temptation of Jesus. And the word tempt is pyrazo, pyrazo. And there's nothing wrong with us translating that as tempt, no problem with Bible translation here. The problem is a, is a little bit with our English word tempt. Our English word tempt isn't big enough for us to really understand this is just temptation. I mean, piderazo means to examine, to test one's faith, character, virtue. It means to tempt or to prove. Do we tempt people to do good things? We would never say that. We wouldn't say, I'm tempting you to do a good thing. When we think about tempting people or tempting one another in things, it's always mischievous or, or bad things. We don't tempt people to do a good thing. And yet, it's the same word, parazo, that is used to describe what the Pharisees do when they try to get Jesus to do things like healing on the Sabbath. They, they attempt to tempt him, tempt him. But tempting is, 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 again, it's not really a sufficient word. And so a better word is test. Test him. Test. Testing reveals the truth. Uh, think about Abraham. Abraham, is, there's a story in the Bible that talks about the testing of Abraham's faith. Where Abraham takes his son to a mountaintop and God has commanded him to sacrifice his son. It's not the temptation of Abraham. It's the testing of Abraham, because testing reveals the truth. When the Pharisees try to trap Jesus, they are testing to reveal the truth, because they think that Jesus isn't the Messiah. They're wrong, but that's what they think. So when they are trying to tempt him, they're actually testing him, attempting to reveal the truth that he's not the Messiah. 
So it's testing. Testing reveals the truth. Think about um, a test you have in school. After you're done with learning a certain thing, then you're tested on how much you absorbed of that thing. It's not a temptation. It's a test to see what you know. It reveals the truth about what you absorbed or what you know. I've told you before that many of the stories in the New Testament do, do this thing called mirroring with the Old Testament, whereas there's a story in the Old Testament that looks a lot like a story in the New Testament. And that's true of this passage that we're talking about with the, the testing of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus. Um, read with me Deuteronomy 8. Let's put it on the screen. It says this, and it should sound familiar to you if you know the story of the temptation of Jesus. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness for these 40 years. So 40 years in the wilderness for the Israelites, 40 days in the wilderness for Jesus. They were led there to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. That should sound familiar, because it mirrors what Jesus is going through. The Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness being tested in their faith. How did the Israelites do in that testing? Not so good. It was a pass-fail course. They failed, all right? The truth of their character was revealed again and again and again when God said, follow me, and they made a golden calf. When God said, follow me, and they rebelled against Moses. Again and again, the truth of their character was revealed. And here's the thing. They may have failed, but that doesn't mean God left them. And that's a wonderful thing for us to know. Because as we reflect on the testing that we've gone through over 2020... If we feel like we failed, that doesn't mean that God leaves us. Even though the Israelites failed again and again and again, God continues to to love them, to walk with them, to guide them, to direct them. They're still his people, and he is still their God, despite the fact that they failed. But now they know what's deep inside. So again, think about your test in school. If you get that bad grade on a test... Clearly, you didn't know the material. Now, you can do a couple things. You can ignore the bad grade, pretend like it never happened, and then keep going. And potentially, the next test you have is going to be that much harder because you didn't learn the first stuff. Or you could say, look, I'm going to study harder. I'm going to get a tutor, do whatever I can, and the next test that comes out, you get a better grade. You learn the material. The Israelites continued to just get bad tests and ignore it, and get bad tests and ignore it, and be thankful that the teacher was nice to them, okay? We need to reflect on the testing that has happened to us. How have we done? What has been revealed by the testing about our character, our faith? Now, let's just go back here. Uh, So the devil says to him, again, if you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. What's he doing? He is trying to get between Jesus and God. He's trying to say, distrust the Father's care of you. Because again, what Jesus quotes comes right out of the passage that we just read. Jesus' response comes out of that passage. And in that passage, what do we learn? That though the Israelites wander for 40 years, 
God provided for them with manna when they were hungry. There was no need for the Israelites to turn stones into bread because God took care of them. When they needed it, he gave them manna. So Satan tries to get Jesus to distrust God's care of him. And I need you guys to understand that Satan's counsel is always independence from God. Satan's counsel is always independence from God. He doesn't want you to depend on God. Satan wants you to believe that you don't need God. You're independent from him. You're self-made. You're self-sufficient. You can do it on your own. Satan's counsel is independence from God. Jesus, you don't need God. You can turn this stone into bread. You don't need it. Think about another man in history, maybe a man named Adam, who's been given a role in the, the earth. And what comes along but a voice that says, you don't need God. You can be just like God. Eat the fruit. Eat it. You'll know what he knows. You can be by yourself, self-sufficient, self-made. Satan's counsel is always, always division, independence from God. Beware of that. How does Christ respond to him? He responds by quoting the, the passage of scripture we just read. Man does not live on bread alone. And for us, I mean, for the first time, from the first time that I read this passage, clearly it was Jesus responds with scripture. He responds with scripture. Why is that? Because the word of the Lord is a sword. It's our weapon. You need to know your weapon. You got to be familiar with the scripture. You got to know what's said. You got to know what promises are being made. And we're going to see that even Satan uses twisted scripture to try and get a hold of us. So how can we know for sure that we're in the right if we don't know the scripture? We must be familiar with our sword. Faith in that word is our shield. So we don the full armor of God against these sort of attacks. Let's keep reading, starting in verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So, if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I'm a little bit of a Bible geek. I've admitted that before. You guys seem to accept me with that, so I thought I would just tell you. There's such interesting old theories that you find if you look in books that are old enough about how Satan went to war against all the angels that guarded these cities of the world. And kind of one by one, Satan smites these other angels, and then he takes that city as his, and he goes to the next one and gets that one, and then that one, and he just keeps getting more and more cities. And it kind of sounds like a good comic book or a good Marvel movie. Um, but I don't think that's the truth here. I don't think that's really what's happening. When Satan says these cities are his to give, I, I don't think that it's because he had some angelic battle and beat these other angels and now he owns them. I think it's a bit simpler than that. Ephesians 2.2 says, um, you used to live when you followed the ways of the, the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. It, it seems more true to me that there are folks in the world who are disobedient people and they've given themselves over to satan and 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 here's 
we wouldn't call them Satan worshipers necessarily. What we have to also be aware of is, I think I've told you before that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It wasn't Mary and Joseph Christ and their son Jesus, all right? Christ is a title uh, given to Jesus, and sometimes when you read books, you'll hear them talk about the Christ, and they're not talking about Jesus Christ, they're talking about the Christ because it's a title that is given to Jesus. It's part of what it means to be the Messiah. Christ is a title. In the same way, Satan is also a title. Satan means uh, adversary. That's what the word means, adversary. And so it's a title we give to any sort of thing, person, power, principality that is adversarially against God, all right? So there are people in the world that are disobedient, that are following a way that is adversarial to God's way. They've given themselves over to Satan, essentially. They've given themselves over to the adversary. And so these people, as they rule a city, as they're in charge, as they have their own power and their own influence, well, Satan could reasonably say, those are my cities, because those people follow my way. That makes sense to me. Therefore, Satan believes that he has the cities. The cities are his. They're his to give to Jesus or not. Interesting that Satan tries to give away something that's not his. I think we'll come back to that. Also, Satan is not as powerful as God. I hope that you know that already. Sometimes we get into the belief that Satan is the equal and opposite of God, that Satan is the yin to God's yang. And, and we get that picture because of all sorts of books and movies that we see. You know, and I thought about Marvel movies a second ago. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with Marvel movies, and there's all these really good, good guys and really bad, bad guys. When you watch those movies, it always it takes everything the good guys have to finally beat the bad guys. But that's not the way the final battle is going to go between God and Satan, between God and the Antichrist, between God and whatever evil is in the world. It's not even going to be close. It's going to be the Super Bowl that's a blowout that you would never want to watch because God is so big and so powerful. There is no yin and yang. It's not equal and opposite by any means whatsoever. We already know how the end happens. We already know it's written. We know that it is over. God destroys evil, destroys Satan. No contest, okay? That's how the final battle is going to go. So we don't have to worry that Satan is somehow more powerful than God. That's part of what evil does to lie to us. God is all-powerful, and evil fools us into thinking it's powerful. That's the truth. Now, my point is, these cities are not Satan's to give. They're not his at all. And you might think, well, how do you know that? Maybe, maybe God did give them over. There's language like that in Scripture. Sure, there's language like that, absolutely. But Psalm 50 says, For all the animals of the forest are mine, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains, and all the animals of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for all the world is mine and everything in it. Jeremiah tells us that we're each knitted in our mother's womb, that he knows the hair, the number of hairs on our head. I'm sorry, the world is God's, period, end of story. And here we have Satan trying to take the sun and trick the sun into taking for himself something that's already his, but before the time is right, okay? And you know we have another story like that too. 
Another story about a father and a son where a son tries to take something that's already his, but before the time is right. The prodigal son, right? That's the story of the prodigal son. A son who wants his inheritance early. I wish my father was dead so I could have my inheritance. What does the father do? He gives it to him. And while he's off squandering it, the father is still waiting for him. And guess what? The father is still a father, and the son is still a son, even though he's gone off and done his own thing. And when he returns... The father makes sure that he knows you are still my son. Put a robe on your shoulders and a ring on your hand. You were always my son, scripture tells us. And then as the father talks with the older brother, he says, my son, everything I have is yours. You see, look, whatever is God's is Jesus's already. But we need to wait for the timing to be right. And so Satan here is tempting Jesus to get that which is his out of order. Satan's attempting to give something away that was never his to give away. And you know what's silly and sad, and it's so true of every single one of us, myself included, there are times that Satan tricks us into giving pieces of ourself away, and they're never his to give away. Never. You and I are the sons and the daughters of God. We are gods. We don't belong to Satan. There's no piece of us that belongs to Satan. And yet Satan convinces us to give little bits and pieces of ourself away. What does Satan want in return for this, this whole promise of kingdoms? What does he say? If you will only worship me. Satan wants Jesus to worship him. To worship Satan. The adversary of God. And there's something important I want to point out. Because Satan doesn't say, I want you to worship me only. He doesn't say, I want you to worship me and stop worshiping God. Actually, it's kind of flipped. That's what God says, right? Jesus responds with a quotation from Deuteronomy 6. And he says, worship, and the, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Actually, it's, it's, it's God that says, I want you to worship me and me only. Satan is satisfied with just getting a little tiny piece of you. Because if he gets that little tiny piece of you, then God doesn't get the whole of you. So as he tempts Jesus, he doesn't say, worship me and worship me only. He just says, worship me. Jesus responds by quoting scripture. Jesus gets out the sword of truth and says, worship the Lord your God only. Serve him only. He knows that God wants your undivided attention. And Satan wants division. God demands your undivided loyalty. Satan demands division. Satan demands dividing your attention. Dividing up your heart dividing up your mind and your spirits so he gets just a little bit. But that's just so that God can't have all of it. Satan just wants a piece of you. He doesn't need the whole thing. He just needs a foothold. Go with me to verse 9. It says, The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. 
They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Guys, Satan uses scripture. Twists it. That's the same passage that we read during our prayer time. Psalm 91. If you are in your Bible this morning, you're looking at it, there should be a little footnote. There should be a little tiny letter in a bracket underneath what Satan says. And that leads you to the bottom of the page of your Bible, and there it's going to say Psalm 91 and give you the set of verses here. I think it's 1 through 2 or 1 through 4. Satan uses Scripture. Now, we used it the way it's intended this morning. We used it for the right purpose. We used it in worship. Satan twists it. He twists the intention of this psalm. And, and, and so here's what he does, okay? Because this is important. It's, it's a distinction, but it's really important. Rather than this psalm about being taking our refuge in God despite the hardness and difficult times, rather than trusting in God when things are dangerous, Satan tries to convince Jesus to create the danger. Satan tries to convince Jesus to create the hard and difficult situation to test God. Catch the difference? The psalm is about hard and difficult situations, and in God we find our refuge when we encounter them. Satan says, Jesus, create the hard and difficult situation and see if God shows up. Satan leads with a lie. Twist the scripture into a lie. If God really loves you, then he'll protect you if you put yourself in this situation. There's probably multiple things that I can liken this to. I'm going to choose snake wrangling because, you know, we never talk about snake wrangling in church. And some of you are probably like, snake wrangling? What the heck is he talking about? Uh, Is he really talking about snakes? Yeah, I'm really talking about snakes, man. Snake wrangling is a thing in church. I don't know if you're aware of that. There's over 125 churches in the United States that still do snake wrangling during their Sunday services. And you may say, okay, I'm still confused, Nick. What are you talking about? Well, in Mark 16, there's a passage of Scripture that says, among other things, it says, these signs will accompany those who believe. And it, it says a few things, like drink poison and they won't get they won't get sick. But one of the things is pick up snakes with their hands. All right. This created a whole sect of folks who during worship services will pick up snakes. And I'm not talking about garter snakes or black snakes. I'm talking about like rattlesnakes and copperheads, poisonous, venomous snakes that kill you. And they will hold them and they'll swing them around and they'll, they'll toss them and all sorts of stuff while they pray and they preach and they worship snake wrangling. And the understanding is, because we have faith in Jesus, because God loves us, we pick the snake up and it won't bite us. That, I mean, that's the belief. That's why they do it. And, and of course, then the logic also holds, they say too, that well, if the snake bites you and you die, then that was just your time. So they have all their bases covered. Alright? And there have been many pastors and parishioners who have died from being bitten by the snakes 
that they're wrangling during worship services. And if you still think that I'm saying this and it's a joke, you Google it, YouTube it. You'll see lots of videos of this happening. I'm not trying to get into some weird theological battle over snake wrangling, but I think they're way off, all right? I don't think that is on point at all. I think that's actually a problem. I think that's a slight twist of Scripture, and so we end up believing a lie. Because Mark 16, which is on the screen right now, doesn't say, go out and pick up deadly snakes. It says, these signs will occur they will pick up snakes with their hands. Doesn't say go and put yourself in the dangerous situation. It says when the dangerous situation occurs, God is with you. For instance, in Acts 28, the apostle Paul is gathering firewood and a snake bites him. A deadly poisonous snake bites him. What does he do? He grabs the snake. He wrangles the snake and tosses it into the fire and Paul does not die from it. Okay? Paul wasn't going out looking for snakes to wrangle. God was with him and protected him when he had to do that, th- that very thing. There is a difference between going out and putting yourself in the situation and trusting God when the situation is happening. Remember, Satan doesn't need the whole thing. He just needs a little piece of you. Doesn't need the whole thing, a little tiny piece, a slight misinterpretation, just enough to get you twisted just a bit. And so go ahead. You fill in the blank. If you have faith, then you don't need the blank. People that blank, they don't really have faith. And it's enough that we're led into the same trap that these guys are led into as well. If God really loves you, he'll protect you if you put yourself in a dangerous situation. Problem is, Jesus recognizes that for exactly what it is. It's a testing of God. So he he quotes Deuteronomy 6 once again. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Because... When you put God to the test, you are putting God in your service. You put God under your will when you test him. That is not how the relationship with God works. We are under and within his will. He is not under and within our will. And so when we put him to the test, we show a lack of trust, not trust. And we show that we think that we are over God in our wills. The son trusts the father. The son doesn't make the father perform tricks. If the father wants the son to lay down his life, then God's going to determine that in whatever time God will determine that in. Not at the will or the behest or the trickery of the son. Let's bring the sermon home. Next time we see each other is going to be 2021. 2020 is, is coming to an end. And we've been talking about preparations uh, with Advent, what, preparing ourselves for the, for the coming of Christ, for the coming of the baby. And when we say unto us a child is born, it's not just a baby that we get. We're given the king above all kings. We're given the mighty counselor, the prince of peace, the great physician. When we're given the baby, we're given the whole story. The older I get, the less I'm able to separate the baby in the manger from the Savior on the cross. They're so intertwined and so wrapped up. We don't just get a baby, we get the full story. And when I look at the life of Jesus, 
even for as little as we know about the life of Jesus, I don't see ease. I see a lot of hardship in the life of Jesus. And when he's born, the king immediately tries to kill him. The king kills like every baby boy. And so Jesus and his parents flee. They become immigrants to a distant land. When it's safe to return and they come back, we see the next snapshot we get is Jesus in the temple, right? And he's, as a 12-year-old, teaching elders. Imagine being the kind of child that has the sort of wisdom that impresses adults. I imagine that kind of child doesn't fit in very well with his peers. That would be hard in its own way. And then when Jesus gets baptized, God confirms him as his son and the Messiah. Imagine carrying the weight of being the foretold Messiah. Kyle talked about waiting 2,000 years for the Messiah. Imagine carrying the weight. You're the one that they've been waiting for. Jesus' life was hard. And then we have the Gospels, which tell us how hard it got. What lies ahead of us in 2021? I have no idea. Is it going to be better than 2020? I don't know. The problems disappear and go away? Are the weighty things going to feel lighter? I'm, I'm not sure. There's just no way for us to know as we look ahead. But if we can look at the life of Jesus and see that he went through hardship, we can expect to go through it ourselves too. And that's why I think the passage that we talk about today leaves us with some important things to stick under our arm and carry with us into 2021. So, let's look back at our passage. We've got six things. And we'll go through them quickly here, but six things to remember as we go forward. One, God prepared Jesus ahead of time for the testing that was going to happen. You and I can trust that God prepares us. And, and you may look back over 2020, or you may look back over your whole life and go, is God really preparing us? I, I don't, I mean, did God really prepare me? I don't, I don't know that he did. No, no, trust me. God has been with you and preparing you for what lies ahead this whole time. Number two, be weary of the footholds of, of body and world. Again, we're not saying that the world and the body are evil by any means. We're saying that sometimes they're the chink in our armor that we miss. They're the things, the cravings, the things that we want. They're the things that we're told we should want that sometimes we let slip right on through and we miss it. Three, testing is not evil. And maybe you're watching this morning and you're in school and you say, I disagree. All right, testing's not evil. It reveals the truth. It helps us know what is here, what is deep inside our character. And so my encouragement to you is not to try and get out of the tests that you're being given. It's to reflect on the tests that you've been given. How did it go? What did it reveal in you? When 2020 came and all these restrictions happened, what did it reveal about who you are? The last hard and difficult thing that you went through, went through what did it reveal about who you are? Testing reveals the truth. Reflect on it. Don't ignore it. Reflect on what it's revealed. And then you can make the course correction, the adjustment if you need to. Or you can carry on because you're on the right path. Number four, Satan's counsel 
is independence from God. It's meant to separate. It's meant to divide. It wants you to think you're self-sufficient and you're self-made, but folks, you are not self-sufficient and you are not self-made. No single one of us. God knit you in your mother's womb and knows the number of hairs on your head. You're not self-made. You have a creator who loves you and cares for you so much that he sent his one and only son to this earth to guide and direct you back to a relationship with God the Father. So find ways to be thankful that you are dependent upon God. Every day, start your day or end your day by reciting what you're thankful for. Find ways to consider how God has walked with you through the hard times. Open your eyes. Don't ignore them. God has walked with you. How has he walked with you? And then find ways to guard yourself against independence from God. What are the voices in your head, the voices in your life that counsel you towards division, separation, and independence from God? The voices in your head that counsel you into a way that is not God's way, an adversarial way, Satan's way, and eliminate those voices. You don't need them. They'll lie to you and tell you that you do. But if they're an adversarial way to God's way, you don't need them. Number five, Satan doesn't want all of you. All he needs is a peace. A little peace that you don't give to God. So here's another reflection. Are there pieces that you haven't given to God? Are there pieces of your life that represent more of an adversarial way to God's way? Finally, number six, do not test the Lord your God. Don't put yourself in situations that puts God in service of your will. Don't put God in service of your will. If you find yourself in the driver's seat, move over. When you find yourself taking unnecessary risks and you're expecting that God is going to keep the snake from biting you or the poison from poisoning you or the angels from keeping your foot from striking a stone, you gotta put red flags and red lights in your life somehow so you can stop it. When you see those things are happening in your life, remind yourself, I'm putting God in service of my will rather than submitting myself to his will. If you can remember these things, if we all, myself, everybody, those who join us online this morning can remember these things, I honestly think that as a community here in Elizabethtown, Kanoi, and as a worldwide church, we're going to be that much stronger. We're going to go into 2021, and whatever comes our way, be it 2020.2 or something way better, we're going to be better off for it. So let's close with Psalms 91. Let's close with the piece of scripture that Satan tried to twist. Yeah? Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge 
and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Let's pray. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.